Welcome to the Executive Function Podcast, where we make the invisible keys to success easy for you to teach your child. We'll go beyond theory to proven action, helping you create peace and independence at home and at school with your host, educational author, award-winning teacher, and celebrated learning coach, Sarah Kesti. Hey team, we are so lucky to have Emily Kircher Morris with us. She is a clinical psychologist. She is the author of Teaching Twice Exceptional Learners in Today's Classroom, which is a book that I'm going to gush about. And she is the host of the Neurodiverse podcast. Did I say it right? Or Neurodiversity? Neurodiversity neurodiversity podcast. Um, and she is just a wonderful human. I think you're going to enjoy our time together with Emily. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Yay. (laughs) Um, so Emily, I absolutely love the book. It is full of resources. And, you know, I, I hesitate a little bit because I'm like, how much more my bookcase is sagging? How many more resources can (laughs) I take? But this is, this is new. This is cutting edge. It's done in a way that helped me better understand what I was looking at and what I can do, especially, um, tell me kind of what inspired you to get this book out. Well, I, th- I think it all starts, um, you know, when I was a kid, I-, I think a lot of us are kind of driven by some of our early experiences. And I was um, I was twice exceptional at a time that we didn't even have that term. So twice exceptional means cognitively gifted and having another diagnosis. So I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was in fifth grade. Um, and that was after I'd been in the in the gifted program for a couple of years. And that was very confusing, I think, for for my parents, for my teachers, for me, because, you know, when you have this ability coupled with a disability, it's hard to know where to go with that. You know, I, I, my grades weren't reflective of it and I didn't have a lot of support and school was really hard for me. And I think that that is part of what drove me when I got to um, college to go into education because I wanted to help the kids who were like me when I was a kid and make their paths a little bit easier. So I started out as a classroom teacher and then I taught um, in gifted ed classroom. I got a master's in gifted education and I taught at the elementary and middle school ages um, in the gifted ed classroom. But then what I really wanted to do was support those social and emotional needs and those kids who were twice exceptional um, because I could see that they still just really weren't getting enough support. So I actually went back and got a second master's in counseling and family therapy and uh, started building a practice. And I've got a private practice right now where I specialize working with gifted and twice exceptional individuals. So a lot of, I have a lot of kids who are ADHDers. I have a lot of autistic clients um, and a variety, you know, anxiety, depression, all of those other just mental health things. But ultimately there is so little good information about understanding what it looks like when you have a child who has high cognitive ability and they have this other diagnosis because they find ways to compensate, they find ways to mask, we're not good at diagnosing them. We don't understand what the struggles are and eventually we lose so much time to be proactive because as they get older and they're unidentified, all of a sudden they get to middle school, high school, college and these struggles really come to the surface as the expectations outpace 
what they're capable of doing. And I think that my my hope with this book was to help educators understand what these kids look like and what we can do right here, right now to help them and set them up for success in the future. Right. And I think what's kind of coming out of what you're saying too reminds me that it's so easy to assume that it's a behavior or a choice when it's actually just a need manifesting in a messy backpack or, Mm -hmm. you know, like having all your homework done and then are you, why aren't you turning it in? You know, that kind of thing where it's like this, these pieces, like you were describing that don't fit together because it's a deep need and a deep gift all mixed into one where, you know, there's sometimes this false assumption that, well, if you're smart, why can't you just figure it out? And that's, Mm -hmm. that's, not a cognitive path that we even need to waste time on. It's not true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think one of my soapboxes, I have many soapboxes, but one of my soapboxes that I really love to to get on and and talk about is the fact that most, I don't want to say most, a lot of school and the things that we are looking at in school are really reflections of executive functioning skills or lack of skills. So a lot of times when we are grading students and they need to, you know, have their work turned in or if, or they have to do it in a certain particular way and they have all these different directions. Like if we're, if we're taking points off because for example, a student forgot to put their name on the paper, are we grading them based on their ability to master that particular skill or objective, or are we grading their executive functioning skills? You know, or when we have behavioral plans, especially at the elementary level, but I would say even older kids who struggle with, you know, impulse control, or they struggle with um, organization and getting things turned in. And we look at these as though they're disciplinary issues. And we put these behavior plans in place we're not going to fix a difficulty that is related to a neurological wiring problem with a behavioral solution. (laughs) Like, like you're not, like if you take, take points away or flip their card or flip their, you know, make them change their color or whatever it is, clip down, that's not teaching the skill. That's just instilling shame. And for our kids who are neurodivergent, we have to find ways to help them build the skills or to accommodate them that empowers them and helps them move forward and doesn't require them to, you know, feel like they're just a bad kid. Right. It's, it's such a poignant area to think about in terms of, you know, it's, and I'm not hearing you say don't have consequences. Like every behavior has a consequence and consequence doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means your actions create a result. But what I'm hearing you say is that if you are going to hold someone accountable teach them how to reach that metric and, you know, move the benchmark as you see that they're growing, but don't just expect them to leap across this huge Canyon when you haven't taught them how to, it's just, it's, if you put it in context that way, it, it seems very obvious, but in the moment, it's very hard to see when we as adults are doing that to kids. Yeah. And I think also, especially for kids who are 
neurodivergent, whether or not they're officially twice exceptional or whatever, what we have to realize is that executive function skills and deficits in many ways are kind of part of their operating system in some ways. Like we're not going to just fix that or undo that. What we really need to help them do is recognize and have some self-reflection to understand where their areas of difficulty are and then how can they adjust their environment or ask for an accommodation or figure out a strategy that works for them to improve that. So I don't know, I, I threw out the example earlier of a student who is, you know, forgets to put their name on their paper. Okay, so you can tell that child over and over and over and over again to put their name on the paper. But if they have some response inhibition difficulties and when they get their work, they just start rolling through it and they forget to go back and look at that, telling them isn't going to build the skill. So what do they need? Maybe they need a visual prompt on their desk, a little post-it note that they could see that would then remind them to go back and check. Maybe they need um, you know, a, a, a teacher that's going to check in with them and run through a little checklist. Okay, what are the three things you need before you turn in your work? You need to make sure your name's on it, you know, whatever, and, and maybe give them a verbal cue. And we can help kids become self-reliant in that way. We, it doesn't mean that we have to be doing it for them, but we do have to help them understand that if this is an area that you're struggling with, we can find a solution, but we just need to collaborate on it and work towards it. But we can't just keep, <laughs> if we just keep telling them, obviously this isn't working, we need to do something different. <laughs> so what is that different thing that we're going to do to help them? Right. That's exactly right. And I'm thinking about the times where even with the names on the paper, where a teacher can start by talking it through, giving them ideas, visual prompts, and then sort of, I know we worry about becoming the child's brain for mm -hmm. them. So eventually it could just be a swing by where you tap the top of their paper and they're like, oh yeah, my name. Mm -hmm. And then it could be just a check in every once in a while. I mean, we're out in our classrooms, we're near our kids. So it's not a big ask the the ask is on the perspective end of mm -hmm. switching what we're looking for and how we're considering it. You know, my, my favorite thing that I accidentally said one time in a training, that detective perspective, but that's mm -hmm. exactly what you were describing. Like, mm -hmm. huh, what could you need? All right. How can we make this happen? And if you, if you have that and then you instill it in the kid, no stopping us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that phrase, detective perspective. I feel like that's very catchy. And it does reflect a lot of what I even talk about in the book, where I talk about using the metacognitive cycle, which is basically um, asking kids to self-monitor and observe what's going on just from a very non-judgmental standpoint, and then collect some data and, you know, and then also finally, you know, self-evaluate, like what's working, what's not. So then they can self-regulate. And those are kind of those three steps, self-monitor, self-evaluate, self-regulate. Because when we step back and we just observe, I think you use the word being curious about what's going on, we're helping them to investigate. And ultimately, that's a skill that they can take with them throughout their life, right? And, and, and that's what we really want them to do. But I, I think it's really important that we do understand that kids are trying and they want to do well and if they're not doing well it's not because they're lazy or because they don't care it's because they 
needs some other type of support. And, and so what does that look like for them? And that's a wrap. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> but, My work here is done. <laughs> check. Got it. I'm going to hire the plane to have that like mm -hmm. banner behind mm -hmm. it and we're good. I, but I mean, tongue in cheek, you encapsulated it really well. That's exactly um exactly what I'm trying to do with, with my podcast as well. So, mm -hmm. um, so in your book, you talked about the brain differences in gifted kids and it was so interesting. Can you tell our team about, um, what that study published in the journal nature talked about? Yeah. So this is a really fascinating um, research about brain development in gifted kids. And let me start off by just saying, in general, kids who are identified as cognitively gifted tend to have what's called asynchronous development. So for those who might not be familiar with that term, that simply just means that different skills develop at different rates. So they might have the math skills of a 14-year-old while they're still only eight, um, they might have the writing and the communication skills of a 10-year-old, but their social and emotional skills might be just where they should be for their age. Or if they're twice exceptional, they might have working memory and processing skills that are even below what you would expect for their same age. So we kind of have these very spiky profiles. So not even including twice exceptionality, but just looking at giftedness. What this research out of the journal Nature did they actually measured the cortical thickness of the around the brains of gifted kids, high ability kids, and then kids with typical or average levels of intelligence. They found that the cortical thickness, which is basically the gray matter that's on the outside of our brain, thins at a rate that is different than other children. So cortical thickness I'm hoping that I'm describing this <laughs> effectively. It's such a visual thing. I'm like using my hands. Anyway, roll with me on it. So, so the cortical thickness when you're very, very young is, is thicker. And that is associated with that very rapid learning that occurs when kids are very, very young. So where they're just like those sponges. The higher the cognitive ability, the longer that cortical thickness stays thick. And so it, it begins to thin at a rate that is slower than other kids. So executive functioning skills tend to come online for most kids around age 8, 10, something like that. But for gifted kids, because that cortical thickness that is associated with that rapid learning thins at a slower rate, those executive functioning skills, which are associated with that cortical thinning, actually come online later. So instead of an 8 or a 10 years old, you might see a 10 or a 12 or even a 14 year old. So that's why sometimes you see gifted kids who just might be brilliant and have these lagging executive functioning skills, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's another diagnosis that is there, although it can get mistaken for a lot of times like ADHD type characteristics. I think it's pretty rare that kids actually get misdiagnosed um, officially, but people who maybe don't know parents or teachers who aren't as familiar with it, they might look at it and say, this looks like you know, some sort of, uh, you know, diagnostic concern. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then eventually that all kind of comes back online and kind of averages out. Um, 
and and everything catches up. So it's fascinating, though, to realize that there is a a biological and physical connection in the brain to that development of executive functioning skills and that it varies for kids based on their cognitive ability. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I love about, I kind of love two things about it. I love the science of it because I'm a geek at heart, but I also love the physicality of it because that is the type of proof that sometimes we need to be able to like engineer, not engineer, because that's absolutely true, provide for maybe some of the more resistant believers in these, you know, some of the old school teachers that are like, well, if you just tried harder, if you just paid attention, you know, so having that proof, you know, in the MRIs and the brain scans, and now what you're describing is so helpful for us in one of our many hats of advocacy and speaking up and kind of, um, endearing people to our kids in a way that then they adopt that detective perspective and some compassion. And, you know, I think that's the bigger part of my job than just providing strategies. I love providing strategies. I love being a strategy fairy and kind of that detective work, but really, truly it's the gift of perspective. Mm-hmm. If you get in that space, then your brain's going to find solutions. And if you ask the kid, they're going to come up with solutions. And it's just such a more empowered position than if you're constantly lamenting what we can't do. Right. Yeah. I think, um, I think kids are so used to education happening to them (laughs) that they forget that they can be an active participant in that process. I think the more we bring kids into that process, the more that we let them learn to trust their own voice and their own perspective, the better we are setting them up for their future. And I think that it's it's hard sometimes when you have a child who is struggling because it is so automatic, especially as parents, to want to go in and just fix it to go in and, you know, just do the things that need to be done to get them done, to make sure things are happening. And we have to find a balance between what they really need and then where they can learn and making sure that they are part of that conversation, that we're not leaving them out because their voice is valuable, even at a very young age. You know, and I'll I'll just throw out this quick little story. So I've got three kids. I've got a um, a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 6-year-old. And so my older two are both identified as twice exceptional. My younger one hasn't been assessed for anything. I think it's pretty clear that we can see some ADHD that's going to be <laughs> coming down the pike. Um, there's a family history there, so, you know. Um, but just recently, you know, he's in first grade this year, and we're only a, a month or so into the school year, and he's really struggling specifically with transitions. Put things, these, Put these things away, do this, you know, get ready for this next piece. And he's either not listening or struggling. And so we've already had a, a virtual conversation with the teacher and, and my son was a part of that. And we developed a little system. He's got a little laminated card on his desk where we picked three times of the day. 
So one of them is switching from math to circle time. Another one is getting ready to go to lunch. And then the third one is in the afternoon, um, I think, getting ready, going to writing or something. But on this little laminated card, he's got a little scoring system where he reflects three times a day after those transitions about how he did. I either did really well, it was okay, or I struggled. And he has little emojis that he chose for that. And that is just a way to bring him into that process and give him an opportunity to self-reflect and realize that, you know, he can control some of those things. He just needs to be aware of them. And people often say, well, how young can you start this? I'm like, any, if they can talk, they can be a part of it, you know, in, in some way to just build that ability to use metacognition to reflect on what's happening and then modify how we react to certain situations. Right. And that's, that's so cool that your son's starting to do that. I, I, it sounds like you've got a pretty cool teacher too. Yeah. And, and let me just also mention, you know, this is not tied to any sort of reward system. It's not tied to success or failure. It is that, it is that detective perspective. That's what we're focusing on there. Um, it is really about helping him reflect and see what's going on. And I think sometimes we get caught up in giving rewards or punishments. I'm not a fan. I would recommend that everybody reads Alfie Cohn's book, Punished by Rewards, if you think that that is, you know, if you're kind of trying to figure out where the balance is with that. Um, sometimes kids will ask, sometimes my clients will say, well, if I do this thing, do I get a reward? Or their parents will say, well, what do I do if they don't do this? Should I, should I have a punishment or whatever? That's really not the goal. The goal, it, when you do that, you undermine the process. And this is a process-oriented endeavor that we really want kids to, to be a part of. I agree because then you kind of fall, fall in love with that journey, that curious, um, brain perspective, all that kind of stuff rather than just, okay, well now what now I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of, um, fall into like a, a journey hole, just kind of like a show hole when you're done on, on Netflix. Not that you and I ever watched TV. <laughs> I think um, we're probably pretty busy, but yes. You know, I'll, I'll admit when Tiger King was over, I was a little bit sad and I was like, oh, this is what they mean, you know, because I mm -hmm. otherwise I don't really watch a whole lot of TV, mm -mm. but that was captivating. Mm -hmm. I digress. So, mm -hmm. but the idea is, you know, if you fall in love with like, okay, here I am, boop, I'm done, then it, it feels yucky when you're done. And there's almost like engaging in some like self-sabotage so you don't get there because in mm -hmm. actuality we love the process that's mm -hmm. what's fun and so getting our kids trained young like you're talking about with having and i'm not going to say there aren't any rewards because there sure are it's just not pre-planned right. like once in a while you are going to come by with a sticker and be like dang you nailed all three good job, yep. you know, and kind of have it be intermittent where it's not expected and it's not right. taken away as a punishment, mm -hmm. but instead also kind of pulling it out. Like, how do you think you did today? You know, and mm -hmm. having them be proud or having them call their parents with you, you know, there's lots of things to do to build up the internal system. And that's what I'm hearing you describe. Yeah. It, it rewards and punishments you know, basically when it becomes transactional, you lose the process. But when it's just something, and, and, you know, you're talking about just kind of sporadically doing this, which ultimately I think is one of the best reinforcers that you can, you can have, but also 
um, there's just the natural benefits of like, I feel really proud of myself today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was successful at doing this. You know, I didn't know if I could. And, and I showed myself that at least on this day today, I could. And I think a lot of times it's also we, we have to help kids understand that even if you have a bad day, that's okay. Because mm-hmm. it's still a learning process. We don't expect perfection from anybody. And I think that sometimes they feel like if if it's not if it's not perfect or if I've been doing really well and then I have an off day, then that means, you know, I'm it's bad or I can't do it. Um, we get so caught up in those perceived failures and we have to really, you know, try to work with kids to overcome that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, you're touching on kind of the growth mindset perspective, which really blew up several years ago. But then where I saw it sour was what you were describing earlier of the like, okay, have a growth mindset, but what does that look like in terms of mini, mini steps? And that's Mm -hmm. where I realized that was executive functions moment to shine, you know, like Mm -hmm. growth mindset sort of gave you the vision and executive function paves the path. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think that like many good things, growth mindset got really blown out of proportion for what Mm -hmm. it was really able to do as far as success. Um, And I think that that is too bad because I think from a cognitive, from a cognitive behavioral standpoint, growth mindset is a really useful tool. Let's reframe your thoughts. Let's focus on how you can be resilient in these situations. Um, I think ultimately though, it's not a panacea. And, and I think, I don't know, I just feel like this happens probably in all industries, but in education, we tend to like latch on to something like this is the cure all. It's going to fix everything. <laughs> and we sometimes forget, like you still have to break it down. Like it's not going to be, there's no one thing that's going to work all the time. Right. And it almost, I've seen the perfectionism kind of put on the outfit of growth mindset and they mm. kind of people like weaponize it against themselves. Like, well, I just must not have had a growth mindset. Well, actually you're having a growth mindset in this conversation with me talking about how you're going to get better. Your mindset's Mm -hmm. not the issue. It's like, you need a strategy or you need like an augmented system. You need something, but it's not, you can't blame something that's like internally you. So I I saw it kind of twist, like we're really good at that with our cognitive biases, (laughs) twisted against ourselves. I've seen a lot of my clients do that. Yeah. You know, it's actually interesting, and I'm not going to be able to cite the source off the top of my head, but there is some research out there that shows that for kids who are very successful academically, in some ways, a fixed mindset can be an asset because they expect themselves to do well as long as we don't fall into that very negative, perfectionistic, unhealthy you know, viewpoint. But it's like it, it, it can sometimes push them to try a little bit harder when something is difficult if that's just kind of the expectation. And so um, it's interesting how even that can vary. I think also just based on like, I don't know, take this example, like if you're a star basketball player or something, you're going to expect yourself to do well. So you're probably going to push yourself a little bit harder. That's not necessarily a bad thing in all situations. And so I think it's also context dependent as well, um, depending on a person's ability and the situation. 
Right. And the tools that you have available to you mm-hmm. and your willingness Definitely. to seek out the tools, you know? Yeah. Asking yeah. for help. Yeah. That's funny. Cause my husband always says the best or nothing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> sometimes I'm in the nothing space a lot, you know, in terms of his perspective, because yeah. it's very, um, binary, but to me, I'm like, I'm kind of in the gray space. If, if I can help someone, I'm going to give it my best, but it might not be my ultimate best work over time, you know? Absolutely. I think, um, I used to, my avatar, like on all of my little pictures on social media and different things used to be just a coffee cup that said world's okayest mom. In order to like combat this idea, we don't have to be the best at everything. We can't be the best at everything. It's not healthy to be the best at everything, you know, or 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 not even the best, but just like always having to go all the way, you know, to be to be just above and beyond. That is stressful. That is a recipe for burnout. And so I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes things just have to be good enough and that's okay. As a parent, I am a good enough parent. I am the world's okayest mom because I'll tell you what, I work with families all the time professionally and I mess up with my kids on a daily basis. Like that is okay. Like I am not perfect. I have my own emotions. I'm a human. When I first started in my private practice and my kids were younger and we would go out to the grocery store or whatever, not only did I feel like I always had to have my makeup done, but I would always be super paranoid that my kids were going to act up and I was going to be like, you guys, come on, get, you know, get it together because someone was going to see me and they were going to like say, okay, this is, this is the lady who's telling us what to do, do with our kids. Like she doesn't have any idea. And now I just own it. And it's like, I just tell people, it's like, I don't have all the solutions. Nobody does. But what I can do is I can sit here and brainstorm with you and say, what has worked in the past? What hasn't worked in the past? And what can we try differently? And it's just a process for parents and teachers too. Um, and I think that that there's this pressure to like have this uh, Instagram worthy existence. And that's just not reality for um, anyone, <laughs> I would mm-hmm. say. You're totally right. And what you're describing on being able to like align your priorities with your values and then plan your actions based on that, that's executive function. Right. And some of the bridge work I do between like my student clients and the parent clients is having them open the discussion about their values because sometimes the assumption of failure, like, oh, my kid's not studying seven days a week is actually a reflection of a value, not a failure. So if my expectation is my kid does school every single day, but my kid has realized that, you know, if I take a day off, my brain's fresher and more efficient when I actually do school. So I value one day off a week. You could have a lingering clash that has nothing to do with success or failure. It has to do with perspective and values. So it's interesting to kind of open up the executive function, metacognitive process to the whole family to explore because we are coming at it with different assumptions and different perspectives. And when you can share those through that gift of being aware of kind of your own thinking, oh my goodness, you have such a deeper understanding and more flow in your family because there isn't this undercurrent of resentment or assumption. It's, I know that this benefits my kid. He's choosing it. He's owning it. 
And he'll experience the consequences, good or bad. So he'll mm-hmm. experience the refreshed brain or he'll experience the late work. And that's not on me. I'm not mm-hmm. a bad parent if my kid's late sometimes. Right. We have it's to okay. we have to release ourselves from that. Right. Which and I'm saying that as I'm thinking, I totally have prompted my students in disguise, like, guys look extra good. The principal's outside, you know what I mean? And that's so silly. Like they are extra good. I should, but there is that pressure of judgment still. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, yeah. so girl, you wrote a book. That's like a big deal. <laughs> and I will link it in the show notes so that everybody can buy it. And I don't willy nilly recommend books because I know they're they're an investment of time and money and Mm -hmm. space on your very saggy bookshelf, but this (laughs) one is worth it. Absolutely worth it. There's tons of things you can copy. There's the digital link where you can download things and send them to all your friends and your Christmas cards. (laughs) 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 My friends would be like, yeah, this is on brand. Yeah. This seems, this seems appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you for the self-reflection sheet. I will promptly recycle it. (laughs) I hope they just don't understand. (laughs) Oh, but they will. They will. We'll beat this drum until everybody's dancing (laughs) with us. Um, So writing a book is a giant process that uses a whole bunch of executive function. When you reflect back on the process, and I know that it was extra long because of shipping delays and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pausing the release days, all the things. Um, what do you feel like really held you through the process and got you through in terms of like your executive function skill set? So I often would, as I was going through this process and I would meet with my clients, I would give examples, um, of what I was doing, but one of the things that I did um, was I tracked exactly how many words I wrote on a daily basis <laughs> and even broke it down like to the hour because it not only at the, at the beginning, I was kind of just more trying to get an estimate of how long it was going to take me to get through all of it since I had never done this before. But then also, I was also then able to realize how much depending on the prep work I had already done or things that I already knew, like how that changed the speed at which I was able to get the thoughts down on paper. I was able to reflect on how my mood was influencing things if I just wasn't feeling well. One of the things that I thought was so interesting that I learned about myself through this process was there would be days and I would be hammering out a section and I would just like, it wouldn't be coming together in a way that I felt like made sense or that people were going to be able to read it. And I would just kind of feel like I was spinning my wheels. And finally, I would just go, oh, forget it. I'm just done for the day. When I would wake up the next day and start writing, that opportunity to just reflect and take a break and relax and come back to it the next day after a night of sleep, it just flowed. And I was that was super interesting for me to actually see it in practice. And I think there's some research about like what's happening in your brain literally when you're sleeping about how everything is kind of like there are functions that are happening there. But it was it was good for me to see that I don't have to force myself through all of the time 
sometimes it is better to just take a break. And I think that that's something that um, culturally, and we talk about resilience, we talk about pushing through, we talk about, you know, and we talk also about self-care, but I think self, like in, in I don't know, self-care kind of gets like a lot of times like pushed to the side or, or not, or, or is maybe misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And so um, anyway, I, I really had to um, structure my days and I just had to, had to know like, this is my time for writing. And I just, you know, you just have to like sit down and do it sometimes, even if you're not feeling it, at least get started on it. Um, I don't know. It was it was interesting. You mentioned executive functioning, but I learned a lot as an ADHD or just about what really works for me because it was such a long process. I got to collect a lot of data about <laughs> what worked and what didn't. Yeah, that's that's so super interesting. Yeah, you're describing that that contract. Like to me, I have a lot of cognitive dissonance on hustle culture versus self care, mm. and I almost I can always tell that I'm adding too much to my plate. <laughs> when I feel like self-care is a have to, Mm -hmm. and I weaponize it against myself. Like, look at you, you're not doing self-care, you know, Mm -hmm. like you haven't painted your nails in two months. What's wrong with you? And that's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, but what I'm hearing you say is that you found that sweet spot of where you didn't let yourself off the hook, but you recognize that tipping point when it wasn't fruitful to sit in front of a mm-hmm. screen and keep yeah. forcing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, t- talking about self-care too, I think self, well, self-care and executive functioning just go together so much because one of the things that I think is a part of self-care is being able to prioritize and set boundaries and recognize when you've got too much on your plate and that's all closely tied with executive function skills you've got to be able to be able to estimate how long a task is going to take before you say yeah sure i'll help with that you know if you can't if you don't have those time management skills it's very easy for self-care to kind of go out the window and um, i think those are sometimes like i i think that there is self-care that is the well, I think self-care is some, sometimes interpreted as like sitting in a bathtub with a glass of wine with candles lit. And while that is all very <laughs> ideal, that is like that can be a type of self-care. But it's also not the only type of self-care. And we forget about the stuff that's kind of the nitty gritty and the day to day stuff that is really important in the long run um, to make sure that we're not getting burnt out. Right. What a cool, I, I love that you kind of went a different direction than I thought you would in terms of answering the question. And that's, that's awesome. That's such a happy <laughs> surprise because now I'm kind of considering like, okay, how can I now take that perspective and share it with people that I help? Because, you know, a lot of them are coming to me with just a course load of AP classes and yeah. college applications. And it's just so much and they're afraid of the judgment if they take a break. Mm-hmm. So kind of knowing how to self-express that need and explore what a break looks like, but also make sure that we're considering the success of tomorrow me in terms of setting up my space so that it's easy to dive back in and I've got a plan and all that. So um, maybe that's like an arm of self-care is thinking about yourself, like doing today work for tomorrow you. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, you mentioned like the kids who take all of the AP classes, and one of my, one of the another one of my soapboxes that I'll pull out here is that just because a student can or has the ability to take all of the honors and AP courses does not mean that they should. <laughs> like, you know, if you want to go into I don't know if your passion is is math and engineering and science and you've got a heavy course load of those types of classes like your junior and senior year of high school because that's what you're preparing yourself for for college. Do you really need AP lit? I mean, is you know, yes you can do it, but is is the do the benefits outweigh the drawbacks? Again, from a self-care perspective, and I think that that goes along with perfectionism. That goes along with growth mindset. I mean, it's like it's, it's so into, integrated with all these other components. And we just sometimes kids need permission to practice that self-care, to practice saying no. Parents need permission to know that their kids will be OK, even if they don't take all the AP classes. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, it's I don't know. Sometimes that lesson is harder to learn um than than it should be (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i agree i was i was one of those high school dropouts in terms of i stopped taking the international baccalaureate the ib classes Mm -hmm. because i had more credits than i needed my grandmother had just passed away and like i needed a minute and i was yearbook editor like i had other Mm -hmm. things that i loved and it was Okay. But I remember just like kind of the social shunning, Mm -hmm. the like being afraid to tell my mom, the, the disappointment that my English teacher just loaded onto me. And it it definitely was a process and it was also so worth it. Yeah. I don't regret it one bit. And in the moment, man, that's a lot of stuff for you to kind of try to, you know, as at 16 or 17 years old, however old you were at that time, like trying to rationalize that and probably knowing emotionally that that was what you needed and making that decision when there is so much pressure to continue that um but yeah think about it i mean it's like would you like i can imagine that there might have been people who suggested that you give up your book instead you know well don't oh. give up don't you know stick with it's like but that's the, maybe the thing that i love like that's my passion why would i there's so much more to that <laughs> for me personally than this other stuff. And, you know, I so I graduated from college a year early. I, I went through and there was one semester. This is kind of hilarious. I, I don't know. It probably doesn't go a lot to show <laughs> prioritizing self-care whatsoever, because I think one semester I took like 24 credit hours. Another one I took 27. But I was on a mission to graduate early. I wanted to be done. And I just wanted to get out of there. And I was like really proud of myself when I finished that. And now I look back and I'm like, why in the world did I do that to myself? I, it wasn't. <laughs> oh, I have the same story. Yeah. Like I, really? I was yeah. out of school credentialed teaching at 22. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I started my first teaching job when I was 21. I was like, like just, you know, yeah, yeah it was crazy. Yeah. And I'm like, why do you guys trust me? This is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same thought. I remember going, okay, I, I actually now have my first year teaching. I th- taught third grade, and some of those students have found me on social media. And I just go, oh, I, I just hope I didn't damage 
you. And they're like, no, we loved it. We just remember that you used to sing to us in class. I'm like, yeah, that sounds on brand. And so <laughs> that was, you know, I would, you know, sing random Disney tunes or whatever. I'm like, yeah, well, I was 21. I didn't know what I was doing. So that was something I could do to entertain you guys. But there you go. no, I don't know. It's, it, it's like one of the things I tell my students or my clients now if it seems like they're in that rush, like they've got it, they've got this checklist and I've got to check off all these things that I'm going to do because this is how I show that I'm accomplished and I'm smart. I kind of tell them that story about when I was in college and I go, you know how many people ask me how long it took me to graduate from college? None. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. It did not make an impact on my life other than I missed out on the college experience because I was so busy taking classes. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it was it was a very strange I don't know. I look back now and I'm, I, I know why I did it, but I don't really understand why that was important <laughs> to me at the time. Like, it just seems so strange. Right. Back. But I think, I think that's the power of taking some time to think about our thoughts and really match up our actions with our values and all those things that, that executive function perspective can give us. And that can kind of unlock some freedoms that will make you function better, you know, that mm -hmm. will kind of like, because it, research shows a stressed brain can't necessarily access neurologically the prefrontal cortex to its best ability when we've got that amygdala and, you know, the stress mm -hmm. system going, there's like a, it's a busy highway. It's not yes. as <laughs> much flow, I would say. And so you're neurologically severing your access to the exact thing that you need by piling on stress. So there is that sweet spot and mm -hmm. it very much is okay to say, I can do this and I'm choosing not to. Right. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. And it, I mean, and I think, um, sometimes kids specifically need permission to do that. We need to be really explicit in letting them know that that's okay because they might not realize that on their own. Right. Well, then I know some kids listen with their parents, so <clears throat> you have permission. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's very okay to, to write your own story. And if that mm -hmm. doesn't include, you know, AP gov, that's okay. You're you'll still going to be, I think you'll survive <laughs> and you'll be a good citizen still. There's yeah. no, there's no moral or character failing there, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. We're long lost sisters. This is fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I agree. It's like, yes, so much. Just, yes. You can relate. Yes. Um, okay. Well, I absolutely love your book. I know I'm going to be reaching out for like collaborations and just to share with you some of the awesome things that your book helps kids accomplish. So um, yeah. this is not goodbye, but this is a very deep. Thank you for being here. Your ideas and perspective are super helpful. Thank you for being Emily. Oh, well, thank you so much for, for having me here. This has been a, an awesome talk. I can't wait to, can't wait to share it. Miss Emily Kircher Morris. Thank you so much for being here and team. You can find her book on Amazon and through free spirit publishing. And of course I will link her book and her podcast in the show notes, as well as the punished by rewards book that we mentioned years ago, back when we were talking about that. <laughs> yes. At the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> I know it's been a great year. 
Thank you for listening to the Executive Function Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to sarahkesti.com where you'll find more resources and chances to connect with others. And please remember to like and review the show wherever you listen to this podcast. We're eager to transform the lives of even more families. 